You're listening to the White House and the Press podcast. Welcome to the White House and the Press podcast, and thanks for listening. I'm your host, Helen Gibson. On this episode, we'll learn a little more about White House media and communications through a conversation with David Almasy. Almasy is a former White House staffer. He worked for the Bush administration from 2005 to 2007 as internet and e-communications director. This means he was responsible for helping the administration communicate with the public online, primarily through whitehouse.gov. Almasy has also worked in the Department of Education, for C-SPAN and the Republican National Committee, and at various public relations, marketing, and advertising agencies. Now he's an adjunct professor at Georgetown University, where he teaches courses on public relations and corporate communications. He also runs Capital Gig, a political communications blog. I talked with Almasy about what it was like to work inside the Bush White House and how technological changes have forced presidential administrations to change the way they communicate. Here's part of our conversation. Thanks for taking some time out of your schedule to tell us more about your career, because it sounds like a fascinating one. Um, of course. Yeah. No, I'm happy to do it. And I appreciate the invitation. Yeah. Now, I understand you've spent over 20 years in PR, digital media, government, um, and now you're an adjunct professor at Georgetown University. Correct. But if it's all right with you, I'd like to spend some time discussing uh, the two years that you spent in the White House. Sure. Um, so... Can you tell me about that? You served as Internet and E-Communications Director in the White House from 2005 to 2007, correct? Yeah, so before that, you know, I really had a background in media. Um, I'd worked at C-SPAN for, you know, just over five years traveling on the C-SPAN school bus and doing marketing and affiliate relations and working with a number of groups across the country covering public affairs. And through that, I really began to understand the value that the internet was playing as it was just getting started, right? Because a lot of people would ask us, where's the bus going? What sort of people are you meeting? You know, um, how can you follow the, the you know, day-to-day activities of the bus? And so um, we pulled together a website called cspanschoolbus.org back in the day. In fact, we had a website before the network had a, had a website. And through that, I really kind of understood how internet and digital technology was going to play a role in communications. And so when I left C-SPAN, I pursued a career, you know, in politics, and I wanted to work with a number of, uh, you know, political campaigns to help uh, certain candidates get elected on the Republican side of the aisle back in the day. And so we had a number of clients. Uh, I joined a company called New Media Communications, and we had a number of clients who were uh, congressional candidates who ended up winning election. And once they got to office, they asked us if we could build uh, official websites for them. And the majority of our clients at the time were U.S. House members. So we worked with a lot of House.gov clients. And then we um, were able to uh, win a couple of accounts on the Senate side. And through that, I ended up meeting a guy named Jimmy Orr. And Jimmy was the White House Internet Director for President Bush during the first term. And so we became good friends, and there was a pretty small group of Republicans who were doing websites in the .gov space. And so when Jimmy announced that he was going to be leaving um, the White House at the end of the first term, of course, we didn't know if 
President Bush was going to win a second term or not. We were hopeful that he would. Um, he, Jimmy went to go work for Governor Schwarzenegger, who was running at the time. He was not governor. He was running for governor and asked if I would be interested in applying to, to fill his job uh, or that spot. So uh, I met a couple of folks that Jimmy had worked with and uh, went in and interviewed for the position. And I got hired, contingent, of, of course, uh, I, was, I was hired in November, but I wasn't supposed to start until January. And so basically I started just a few months, uh, or a few weeks rather, after uh, inauguration. So, so I worked uh, the beginning of the second term, and you know, I had the benefit of having a website that was you know, built prior to my arrival. Um, you know, President Clinton was the first to have a website as president, and President Bush was the first to have his entire uh, administration covered online um, all eight years. And so, you know, there were a lot of tools that we were using um, that were already in place, but there was also a lot of growth in the technology and the web space. Um, and so it was really a fun time when I first started because social media didn't exist yet. So Twitter and Facebook and YouTube and all those sites uh, were not in existence when I started there. So we were trying to figure out in real time how to use some of these tools. Uh, we were also sort of challenged with some of the rules that are in place when um, a government official uh, is in office in terms of you know, 508 compliance. You know, there are rules and laws in place to make sure that those who are seeing or hearing impaired can have access to information on a federal government website. And these are not rules that websites in the private sector have to follow. And so, you know, when websites like YouTube started to pop up and people wanted to embed videos on WhiteHouse.gov, we were not permitted to do that because mm -hmm. at the time, videos did not have closed captioning. And so we had to make sure that all of our videos had closed captioning resources um, or that there was a text version available for every speech the president gave, uh, every podcast, every, every you know, audio file, whether it's a presidential radio address or audio files from press briefings or what have you, all had to have a transcript associated with it in order to be in compliance with the law. So there was things like that um, that really popped up. And then you want to get really technical, things like cookies that are placed on people's machines that track what users are coming to the site and what pages they click on. Uh, the federal government is not permitted to um, collect any information from a user. So in other words, we don't know that, that Helen Gibson came to our site at a certain time, but we do know that someone from, say, uh, Western Kentucky's you know, domain or your IP address was accessing our site at a certain time of the day, and we know which pages that, that user clicked on. But other than that, we didn't know anything um, that could help us inform future decisions for the website, so we knew which pages were garnering more attention than others. So we couldn't apply it to a specific demographic. We just had general numbers. We knew how many people were coming, and we know what pages they were on and how long they stayed on the site. Uh, but we didn't necessarily know who they were or anything about the person who was visiting. Um, and a lot of private sector websites do that. You know, if you have a Google account, for example, and you're logged into Google and you visit a website, um, whether it's Gmail or, or anything else, they can track based upon your user preferences what you search for, how, how, what sites you visit, and then they can better determine which ads to serve to you next time you log in. Obviously, the federal government doesn't advertise um, on .gov websites. Um, so it was, it was kind of a different sort of uh, plan for us. But so so th those were some of the challenges that we had, but obviously the opportunities for audio and video and the website specifically were huge. And so when I joined, we had a website, but a lot of these tools were just coming online, and so we, were, we, had, we had the ability to experiment a little bit, which made it really exciting. 
Yeah, that seems like a very interesting time to be in the realm of internet communications. You know, you mentioned social media hadn't really burst onto the scene yet, but the internet was in full force. So it's, it seems like an interesting time to do that job. Yeah, I mean, it, what, it really in, what it really required, which, which can be challenging for those who, you know, who don't have a background in internet communications. I mean, um, you know, for example, gra- you know, graphic designers, you know, a lot of them uh, were, uh, you know, basically developing, you know, online banner ads and that sort of thing. But the concept of developing websites from scratch was really kind of a new thing. And HTML was, was the primary language. And so, you know, our, our website from a technology perspective did not operate in an open source, what they call a CMS, uh, a content management system. Um, we didn't have things like WordPress or Drupal or some of these really popular CMS systems in place. We had it built from, by hand, uh, uniquely and organically from our web team. And the majority of our web team were contractors. So, you know, they showed up at 8 o'clock and they went home at 4.49 every day. And so, so we, we, you know, the, the political staff who worked for the president, obviously our hours were a little bit longer, but we didn't have training in the, in the technical backgrounds that, that a lot of these, you know, really advanced web developers today have. So, but that made it fun, too, because it was sort of this wild, wild west, you know, in terms of what could be done. And as new websites and new social media platforms were coming online, we had discussions internally as to what we could do legally, number one. Um, and the primary challenge about using social media for us was about archives, because the Presidential Records Act requires that anything published from a federal government employee must be preserved for future generations to access down the road. So anything I po- posted on WhiteHouse.gov, we had a system in place to preserve that. But if I tweeted something on a Twitter account that was run by an official you know, White House employee, me or someone on my team, we had to make sure that that was captured because if it was done as a part of our official communications duties, then that communication would fall underneath the Presidential Records Act. And at the time, Twitter was just being launched, as was Facebook. And so we reached out to all those platforms and said, hey, if we start using these tools, can you all package all this up and like, provide a server to the National Archives and Records Administration so that people can search us in the future? And the general answer was no, because they just they weren't you know equipped to be able to do that. The good news is that you know during the 2008 campaign, because remember you know Twitter you know was 2007 and Facebook was 0506 and YouTube was 06 when when Google purchased them so um, or you know acquired them rather. So I think you know by the time the 2008 campaign rolled around, which was uh, then Senator Elect uh, Senator Obama's campaign and Senator McCain's campaign. Um, during that campaign, whoever was going to be the next president, all the social media tools realized that they were going to have to you know, do this from a federal government perspective because you know, those campaigns used social media, you know, Obama primarily, um, really aggressively and really creatively during that 2008 campaign. So once they got elected, they had the ability to prepare for that. So once they came in, they, they created a system by which these things could be preserved for the archives. But they didn't have it when, when we were in office. And when we asked for it, they were kind of surprised as to why we would need it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because nobody had ever done that before. So exactly. <laughs> they probably didn't know what to expect. Exactly. And I used to joke, you know, by the way, that you know, after inauguration, um, you know, when the when the president-elect puts his, his or someday her hand on the Bible to swear, you know, um, the, 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 the oath of office, that right inside is a list of all the social media passwords. <laughs> <laughs> Front cover right there. <laughs> exactly. So you have the Lincoln Bible, and then on the inside flap is, uh, if you want to log into Twitter, here it is. Um, 
Although some might want to take that away for President Trump, the, <laughs> the password. So. <laughs> well, that kind of um, brings me to something that I wanted to make sure I asked about. Yeah. Um, talking about the changes in communications and media and the Internet that have happened since you left the White House. Um, how have you seen that play out, I guess? Uh, has that totally changed what yeah, you were doing? Like, I mean, would your job be completely different now if you were um, working for the Trump administration instead of the Bush administration? Yeah, well, uh, look, let's take the, the name of the president off. Okay. Let's just say, like, a current president. Because uh, th- th- there's actually two answers to that question. The, the, the one answer is, in a modern presidency, how would that president use social media, right? And, that, and so the second question, or the second answer would be, it, it depends on the personality of who's president, right? So, um, you know, so President Obama, who was very active in social media as a, as a you know, candidate, was actually fairly limited himself in terms of his use of social media. I mean, he only tweeted a handful of times himself, personally. You know, he had a team of people who, who was doing it for him, um, or doing it on behalf of the White House. And I, I imagine that had we had those tools um, and had those tools been mature enough, um, then we would have used them. So keep in mind, I mean, back during the Bush administration, you know, the website itself was kind of viewed as a bit of an afterthought. It was sort of like it was, it was a digital archive. So the president speaks, he does an event, you know, we have a transcript, we have audio, we have video, and it takes a little while to compile all those resources, particularly if he was traveling during those events, because the White House Communications Agency, which is actually run by the military, um, they would bring the physical tapes, the videotapes that they would use to cover these events on location back with them on Air Force One. And so when they came back to D.C., they would bring the tapes to our web team. Our web team would put them in the decks, and then they would encode them and digitize those tapes and make a digital file of them. And then we would edit those together to make one long video file that we would then upload and attach to the speech or the event for that day. And sometimes, the, you know, we would post the transcript, you know, within a couple hours because there's the, trans- there's the speech that was pre-written. So obviously the president and his team and the speechwriters would pull together what words were supposed to be said during that event. And then there are people on site who are actually writing the specific exact words that were said. Because sometimes the president might veer and go, go off script or, you know, ad-lib a little bit or provide a, an anecdote that was not in the original prepared text. And so our website was, was it was our goal that it would be the exact word-for-word um, record of what he said on that day at that location. And so then if we got the audio later, then that would attach to that. And then, and then if we got the video and we would encode that maybe a couple hours or the first thing the next morning, uh, that would attach to that. My personal goal was to have everything up before we went home that day. So that if you were sitting in Topeka, Kansas, and you saw the local news coverage about the president's events that day, then, and you wanted to learn more about it, and you went to whitehouse.gov, it would either be on the front page of, of the website when you got there, or it would be on the calendar on the left-hand side attached for that day. If we waited two or three days, our view was then, you know, we weren't providing access to the information in a timely manner. And so that sometimes, as you might imagine, provided for late nights for our team, or at least for a select few members of our team. But that's what we were there to do. Uh, that was our job. And so, so yeah, so, so in the very beginning, you know, when social media started to pop up, it, you know, the, the website itself was kind of viewed at, as an afterthought, and, and social media was viewed as a way to augment that coverage. But people weren't using Twitter in 2005 because it didn't exist. And so the website, and I think a lot of people in the White House didn't recognize that, that the White, at the time, that the White House website was probably reaching more people than traditional media was. 
and I had conversations with several senior communications people, and they said, well, how many views does WhiteHouse.gov get? And I said, we get roughly a million you know, unique page views a day. And so, and, and, and I said to them, you know, well, as I know that at the time, Tim Russert's Meet the Press was probably the most valued, you know, TV um, outlet for getting the president's message out if we had a surrogate on or a member of the administration on Tim's program on Sundays. That was something that, that was really valued. And I did the numbers on that, and they were only reaching probably, you know, uh, three to 400,000 people uh, every Sunday. And the majority of those were inside the Beltway in Washington. So you know, it's not like everyone wakes up and watches Meet the Press typically. Um, so, so getting people to understand the value of the internet—that when you Google something, and if WhiteHouse.gov shows up first, and the president's message gets in that person's inbox or, 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 or in the on the screen first organically—then there was a huge advantage to that. And so, I think if we now transfer to how we approach it today, you know, that social media, like a lot of people are using social media, but most of it, I would argue, is incoming. Right? There are a lot of people who use Twitter to receive information, but they don't actually tweet themselves. Um, you know, I heard a stat the other day that roughly 10% of those on Twitter create 90% of the content. And so that means that everyone else is using it for incoming with the, you know, with, with the you know, exception of like the occasional tweet here and there. But a lot of people um, probably approach it that way. And I would say YouTube is probably even more so. I mean, there are a lot of people who watch YouTube videos almost every day, but very few people are actually creating that content on a regular basis. Um, so, so with that in mind, you know, I think that both political campaigns, obviously, um, you know, during the uh, uh, Obama second uh, race uh, versus Kerry, and then, of course, the, the Trump-Clinton campaign, that you know, people understood the power of the Internet a little bit more and, and from a campaign perspective. Um, but the challenge is, how can these tools be used from a governing perspective? Because the rules, as I mentioned earlier at the beginning of this call, uh, or this, this conversation, um, were much different on the governing side. Um, but, but you have in, in President Trump a person who is using Twitter pretty effectively you know, just as a, as a corporate citizen, um, and he had a huge following because of his sort of, you know, persona and his reality shows and everything else. And so the, the ability to leverage that on the campaign trail was something that had never really been done before. Um, you know, President Obama was using, you know, the people that he had used uh, or built up during his first campaign, but it's not like he had a huge following going into his first race. In fact, you know, and, and the Clintons didn't really have anything at all. In fact, President Bill Clinton did not have a Twitter account until just a couple of years ago. And I don't think Hillary was really using social media. Um, you know, she was using it primarily as a senator back in the day and then, and then as Secretary of State. But, but she wasn't using it personally in the way that Donald Trump was. Um, so, yeah, so, so you're right. So the way it's changed is now, you know, people almost mention Twitter uh, or Facebook in the first breath as opposed to uh, it being an afterthought. In the past, it was digital people wouldn't even have a seat at the table when it came to communications. They just said, oh, make sure the web guy gets the transcript so he can post it on the website. Now it's, okay, if we're going to roll something out, how do we integrate our communications so that all of our social media platforms are being used? Do we have video for YouTube? Do we have audio um, you know, for podcasts? Do we have um, photos for Instagram? Are we using Snapchat? You know, are, there's all these different ways to reach people um, via these social media platforms. And I think, as we've seen, there's a lot of conversation about how these tools have been used and what sort of influence it had on voters when it comes to Election Day. Right, right. And do you think um, we're going to continue to see changes in the way 
the White House, our government offices communicate with the people as we get fami- more familiar with these technologies and platforms? Yeah, well, not only that, but I think that the technology platforms will continue to evolve, right? I mean, you have to, you have to you know, think back. Like in the very beginning of communications, I mean, the written word was probably the most powerful. I mean, it's what our country was founded on. I mean, the ability to create these documents and to understand the language and to, and to you know, create these you know, incredibly lofty goals and thoughts as to what our new nation, as we broke apart from, from, from England you know, and uh, 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 Great Britain, you know, how are we going to be our own country? And so the ability to communicate that you know, in the very beginning was really important. So you know, the, the printing press you know, changed the way that, that we could communicate these thoughts. And then you advance to radio and how people were you know, being reached through, through audio. Um, and then you go to television, and then you know, and you see how you know uh, presidents have very effectively used television, and now the internet is just the next evolution of that. And so, really, the question is, is you know, uh, the politicians who are going to be the most successful in the future, uh, based on what's happened already in the past, is, are those who can master the communications tools of their day. And, you know, and there, there's some discussion about the fact that the Clinton campaign did not use social media in the same way that the Trump campaign used them. Evidently, Facebook and Twitter and Google and everyone else had approached the Clinton campaign and said, you know, we want to help you. We have teams of people that can work with presidential campaigns on both sides of the political aisle. And the Clinton campaign turned them down and said, no, we, we got it. We're, we, you know, we're doing this all in-house. And the Trump campaign said, yeah, come on in. And the RNC worked very closely with with all of these companies um and so they took advantage of how to use some of these tools and so i don't know if that actually resulted in in a win for president trump or not but it's hard to say that it couldn't hurt right so um so i think that 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 the campaign and, and i will credit the obama campaign as well i mean they were very quick to jump on some of these tools particularly for them in the mobile space and texting was a was a fairly new thing in 2008 and there was a, a Republican company, actually, at the time called Tusk Mobile, um, who reached out to um, all the Republican campaigns and specifically the McCain campaign and said, we want to work with you to gather mobile numbers so that we can text people in real time and encourage them to vote on Election Day and to get involved in the campaign and to get people to volunteer and do door-to-door knocks and phone calling. And the McCain, the McCain campaign said no. So then they went over to... Um, uh, to the Obama campaign, and they said, let's give it a try. And so they did. And um, they were wildly successful. In fact, they announced Vice President Biden as the pick for Obama's running mate via text. And they mm-hmm. ran a whole campaign before that, saying, if you sign up, you'll, you'll find out before the rest of the world finds out, because we're going to text you the decision. Well, traditional media is so good, they actually got the news before they were able to text it out. But it really didn't matter at that point, because the Obama campaign had already collected so many phone numbers that it was really helpful on election day. And what they were doing was if, it, if you lived in an area where it was raining on that morning on election day, you would get three to five texts uh, encouraging you to go out and vote because typically people stay home when it's raining because the weather's bad and they don't want to go outside. So being able to reach people directly through a text message encouraging you to vote, even if they've already done so, um, could really increase turnout. And I think particularly among the younger voters, that was a technology that was really effective. So I think whether it's a candidate or whether it's a government, you know, they have to understand how to reach people. And if the private sector is advancing technology so quickly, it would be you know, foolish not to embrace some of these technologies in an effort to be more effective. Kind of want to 
on my final questions. Um, what major takeaways do you have from your years of working in the White House Office of Media Affairs? Um, and in the time since then, what did you learn and what are you left with? What resonated with you? Yeah. Well, the one thing that I learned is that you got to be organized in a job like that. Like you have to have a vision and a focus on what it is you want to achieve. And, you know, I spent the first two weeks at least um, after I started, I was a little bit overwhelmed when I first walked in the door, to be honest, because there was just so much going on every day. And there was the day-to-day maintenance of the website, which needed to be done. But, but, you know, I wanted to kind of push the envelope and do new things. I wanted to take us into new areas. And so the ability to, to sell that and to make the case for why we should invest you know, some time and resources to make sure that the website could do new things. Why was that important? How was that going to help the government be more effective? How was that going to help the, the president's message be communicated? Um, you know, when we invested in podcasting, for example, because iPods were coming online, I heard from so many reporters who said, thank you so much for creating the MP3 downloads, because they were often traveling. And they would say, you know, listen, I don't have access to live internet connections. So if I can if I can connect online, download, you know, the audio version of the president's speech, then when I'm on the airplane, I can plug in my iPod back in the day before there were like really cool iPhones that we have now. Um, but they could listen to the president's speech on the from the MP3 file that they had you know pulled onto their iPod on an airplane. And they could type the report on their laptop as they were traveling three, four hours in the air, and so it helped them become more effective and access information was better. I heard from military veterans who said, you know, listen, we were deployed overseas and, you know, we couldn't watch the president's event because we don't have access to television here, but we knew we could log into whitehouse.gov and watch it live and then see the archive version of the speech um, so that we could see what he was saying at the time. So those sorts of things were really important to me. And so I realized, okay, I have to be organized and I have to have a vision. So I got to keep the trains running day to day, but I also want to be able to push the envelope. So I made a list of 10 things that I wanted to achieve before I left. Um, And the biggest one, and I prioritized them, the biggest one was a redesign. And it was also the hardest one to get approved, uh, by the way. Um, And so so we, um, you know, of those 10 things, the only thing I did not achieve um, was I wanted the president to do a live video chat via whitehouse.gov. It actually happened after I left, so the administration did achieve it, and I would like to think I laid the groundwork for that prior to my departure. Um, but you know, he did a live chat from Air Force One on the way back from a trip to the Middle East, and so um, so for me that was probably the biggest sort of uh, victory for me uh, next to uh, launching a brand new website. Um, so, uh, but you know, but but being able to communicate to those superiors above you in terms of how is this going to be effective, you know, would it be cool to do it? Yeah, okay. So it's cool to do it. It might generate some more media for us, but does it really help us be more effective in our jobs, or does it help us govern better, or what have you? Those sorts of you know things had to be laid out initially because otherwise people, you know, were too busy with their day to day to really focus on it. And sometimes when you present new ideas. Um, in fact, when I met with the, with the web team, when I first got there, I said, hey, here are the 10 things I want to achieve. One of them, who was a contractor, rolled his eyes and said, great, now we have more work to do. And I was like, that's what we're here for. Like, we are here to do new things. We are setting the standard. And, you know, sometimes government is not the first to innovate. Sometimes government is the last to innovate, and therefore our citizens suffer as a result. I said, my goal you know, if we do five of these 10 things, I'll be happy, but I want to do as many of these as we can in the time that I'm here. 
And in fact, the, the deal I made with my wife was, because I knew it was going to be a challenging job, I said, give me a year at this job. And if I, if I can make some headway in a year, then you know, I'll move on and, and I will return our life to normalcy. Because we had a little girl at the time who's now a, a grown-up girl, but at the time she was, she was small. Um, and after a year, we had accomplished three of those ten, and I turned to her and I said, can I have one more year? So, so God bless my wife, Julie, because she said, absolutely, you know, you can do it. We'll, we'll, we'll find a way to make it work. And so, um, so uh, completing nine out of the ten for me was something that was, was something I'll always be proud of. So, but, but creating a list and creating a vision and then communicating that vision to a team of people as to what was expected of them and how can we chip away at each of these goals every day um, was something that you know, I'm, I'm really proud of as I look back. I did think of one more question. I was going to make sure I asked, um, what were your day-to-day responsibilities in that position? Just to make sure I understand completely what you were doing. Um, Was there a typical day in the Office of Media Affairs, or was every day just vastly different? Yeah, so so the difference between the Office of Media Affairs and the press office is, you know, we're all part of the communications team. So Dan Bartlett was the head of communications. He was the senior advisor to the president. He was... uh, um, the, the official title is assistant to the president um, for communications, and so we all sort of laddered up to Dan. Um, media, so the press office, their primary job was to work with the White House press corps. So those people that are the reporters for radio, TV, print, and online that were dedicated for White House communications. Uh, excuse, excuse me, well, well, uh, the, the Daily White House beat, right? So those reporters came in, they went to the press briefings, they worked with the, the, the press officers who are all you know, part of the White House uh, uh, press office team. Um, the Office of Media Affairs, our job was um, mostly regional press. So we basically divided the country into four quadrants, and depending on what part of the country you lived in, you had a media affairs representative who worked with you. If issues or something happened, um, you know, in the world that affected someone from, you know, Kentucky, we made sure that there was someone there who was your person, who understood the local press, who knew all the outlets, radio, TV, print, and online. And so if the president was visiting, you know, Bowling Green or whatever, we'd make sure that all the local media outlets were there. We'd make sure that local, you know, volunteers would come out to meet uh, the president and so forth and so on. So we had sort of that, that local press. And then there was also specialty press. So things like, you know, sports press. You know, sports press doesn't come to the White House every day, but when the Super Bowl champions come, there's a lot of sports press at the White House that day. And so we need to make sure we had someone who to manage all those specific, um, you know, um, folks. So for me, you know, my job was Internet press and bloggers. Now, in the beginning, it was fairly easy because there were only a handful. There was like, you know, about 10 on the right and 10 on the left and a couple in between who wrote about politics on a regular basis. By the end of my tenure, after two and a half years, um, or so, or to, uh, basically it was, you know, 10 bloggers per issue. So we had education bloggers and social security bloggers and military bloggers. And so anytime we hosted an event, it was, it became more and more challenging to, um, to engage with folks because, because there were so many of them out there and we had to really prioritize as to which blogs were going to be the most influential to make sure that our message could get out. 
Um, and so we started doing blogger conference calls towards the end of the administration when I was there um, around State of the Union or you know presidential addresses or you know major decisions that were being made. And Tony Snow, who was the press secretary um, uh, during my tenure there, was amazing. And, had, and because of his background at Fox and, and his radio show, really knew a lot, or a lot of folks in the blogger community. And so it was a challenge, quite frankly, to get um, you know, the press office to do blogger calls before that. Uh, but when Tony came in, he really opened up the door to that. And he called me um, his first week there and said, can you come over? I want to talk blogger strategy with you. And I could not have run over to the, to the West Wing faster. I mean, I was so excited about that. So, um, so yeah, so there is no real typical day. I mean, I, we always joke like there's the day that's supposed to happen and then there's the day that actually happens, right? So somewhere in between, um, you know, what you plan to do and what actually happens is your day. And so, um, but most days, you know, I would get up, I would go into work. Well, actually, I would get up around 4 o'clock in the morning. I would go online, and I would start to check what the blogs were saying from the night before because uh, we had a meeting in the press office every day at 7 a.m. And so we had to make sure that as we went around the room with all the media affairs folks and all the press people, they would say, okay, what's going on in your quadrant or what's going on on the web or what's going on, you know, in this community. Um, and so we'd have to report so that everyone was on the same page. We'd say, okay, well, here's the president's day today. You know, he's going to do this event. He's got this speech. He's got this announcement. He's flying here. He'll be back at this time, whatever. And so we're all talking about what our plan is for the day to make sure that we're reaching out to all of our constituents, both from the voters' perspective and the media perspective, so that they have all the information and all the assets in place to make sure that people have access to, what, to what's happening. So then we go back to our desks, and then we had a media affairs meeting, which is just our own team, and that usually happened probably around, you know, 9 or 10. Um, and then for me, quite frankly, like until lunchtime, you know, the day was pretty easy in the morning because I had to wait until the president's events actually happened before I got the transcripts and the audio and the video, as I mentioned earlier. And so a lot of times we were just sort of waiting and preparing for that. Or there might be a special section on the website that we're launching. Maybe there's a trip coming up in a month and we have to do a special trip around the you know, G8 summit, or maybe it's the holiday decorations page. And like this time of the year right now is probably one of our busiest because we had to do all the, you know, unique designs for all the, you know, the, um, the white house, um, holiday events and so forth and, and the videos the barney cam mm -hmm. which which i worked on uh which is the president's dog we did a annual video for that uh, which was kind of fun for kids and silly for adults and and all that stuff and so so basically we had to make sure that that everything was sort of it was a long-term strategy for the website and all the sections that need to be launched by a certain day and then there was the short term every day making sure the website was updated by the president's events so so yeah and then in between all that i was answering press calls from internet press and bloggers um and then the only other thing that, that was part of the responsibility was there's a press duty rotation. So after hours, when everyone went home, and I usually went home anywhere between 9 or 10 at night, um, when we were on the way home, um, basically you were uh, about once every week or so, you were on duty. There's about 10 or 12 people that were in the rotation. You were the press duty officer for that for one night. So if anyone called the White House from the media, after hours, which is after about six or seven o'clock at night, it would go to you and you would have to field all those questions and determine whether you needed to elevate that up to either the press secretary or to the president himself. Um, and there was only one occasion that, that the president had to be woken when I was, or awakened when I was on duty. And it had to do with, uh, with Saddam Hussein. Um, in fact, when, when he was executed, uh, you know, uh, it was, I think it was around, 
I don't know what time it was. I think it was 10 o'clock or 11 o'clock at night, our time. And so the question was, you know, was the president awake when that happened? And he actually went to bed at 8 o'clock uh, at night. And so he slept through it. And so the reporter asked me, well, why wasn't the president awakened? And so we had to come back with an answer. And I said, uh, just kind of off the cuff, I said something, I can't remember the exact wording, but something to the effect of, well, the president went to bed knowing that uh, the world was a safer place without Saddam Hussein. So, so, he, so he slept much more soundly. Um, so, so anyway, so I think, you know, like sometimes those sort of things come through. Most of the time, though, my answers had to be vetted through about a couple different layers because if it had to do with an issue that I didn't cover or know much about on a regular basis, particularly if it was a military thing about troop you know, size or movements or what have you, and I wasn't sure what was you know, able to be publicly you know, disseminated or not, I had to check with certain authorities. So sometimes when you're on press duty office, you are working well into the night because obviously the West Coast – you know, you're you're ready to go to bed at, at midnight, but that's only 9 p.m. on the West Coast, so the calls keep coming until 2, 3 in the morning. Um, and then you finally can go to bed about 3 or 4, and a couple of those nights I just didn't sleep and just went, went right into work at 4 o'clock anyway. So, um, so yeah, so it was a, it, there were challenging days and nights for sure, no question, but um, it was an honor to do it, and if I had to do it again, I would do it 100%. Thanks for joining us on this episode of the White House in the Press podcast. And special thanks to David Almasy for taking the time to tell us a little more about his experience working in the White House Office of Media Affairs and his thoughts on the way technology has changed the way presidents communicate with the public. Until next time, I'm your host, Helen Gibson. Thanks for listening. The White House in the Press podcast is a project created for the Fleischacher Green Scholars and First Amendment Studies program at Western Kentucky University. To view research, projects, and reflections from the students in this class, check out our website at wkujournalism.com slash whitehouseandpress. Again, that's wkujournalism.com slash whitehouseandpress. And if you like what you're hearing, you can find more episodes of this podcast on SoundCloud and iTunes.